today I'm going to do the, something I'm going to do for the first time ever in the history of our church, and that is actually preach a Father's Day message, okay? Uh, normally we're kind of in a series and we just kind of keep flowing with what we got, uh, but it's really felt pressed this year to bring a special uh, message to our men and to our fathers, and so uh, women, you're, you're welcome to listen in, um, but, but this morning I'm kind of, um, kind of gearing towards uh, the men, and I'm sure you can glean something as well. Uh, uh, from the text says God is good to us in that way. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to dive into God's Word together this morning. And go to Luke chapter 8. If, you are, if you're visiting with us or if you uh, need to borrow a Bible this morning, there should be some hardback black ones somewhere there in the chairs around. You can kind of look around and grab one of those and follow along that way. Uh, if you're online, again, we're welcome. We're glad you're here, Facebook. And uh, you can follow along with us in Luke chapter 8 as well. We're going to pick up in verse 40. This morning, looking at the story of Jairus and his interaction with Jesus and what we can learn from him as a father. Um, and so as I, was, as I was prepping this morning, I was thinking just about, you know, manhood and, and fatherhood and, and being a male and those kind of things. And, and throughout history, I think, not just in America, but throughout all of world history, we see that kind of one of the quintessential characteristics associated with maleness has always been strength. Um, for various reasons... But that's kind of the, the thing that's been out there. And so it's led to, you know, sport after sport, competition after competition, uh, war after war. And, um, but one of the competitions that you'll sometimes oftentimes see on ESPN, if you ever are perusing that channel, is the World's Strongest Man competition. Who's, who's ever seen this before? Everybody got sucked into watching this before? Like these guys do some amazing, incredible, crazy feats of strength. I mean, just insane stuff. Um, to prove that they are the world's strongest man. Like, this dude is pulling not one, but two monster trucks behind him. Like, I'm just, that blows my mind, right? Like, so they do some incredible things here, and I, I, I love to watch this stuff. I love to kind of get sucked into it because I think a lot of people do it because, it, again, it's just that almost supernatural show of strength. And as a guy, that just kind of really, like, that's cool. I wish I, wish I could do that. Um, but, but I think that's, that's just something that's kind of wired into us. I've, I've never, as a man, I've never talked to another guy who's ever been like, you know what, what I really, really want is I just want to be weak. Like, I've just never heard a guy say that. Like, I, that's just never, now, we're all, maybe you want to be strong in different ways. Maybe we're not all trying to, you know, pull monster trucks. And you're trying to be strong in something else in your life, and that's cool. We're, we're down with that. But men want to be strong in something. We, and, and the issue we run into with that as men in our culture is that we oftentimes want to then define strength the way the world defines strength. And that's where it gets broken. If we, as Christian men, as followers of God, if we want to be strong, we have to think about strength the way God thinks about strength. We have to define strong the way he defines strong. And so today we're going to look at that and see what we can learn about being strong in God's strength rather than just in man's strength. And so the big idea as we dive into the text this morning is this. My strength as a father is determined not by how much I can carry, but by how much I lay down. My strength as a father is not determined by how much I can carry, how much weight I can go with, how much problems I can solve, how much stuff I can carry. It's about how much am I willing to lay all of that down at the feet of Jesus and let his strength flow through me. And we're going to see that from Jairus' story today in Luke chapter 8. So go with me in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. We're going to pick up there. It starts off like this. Now when Jesus returned, 
The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And as Jesus went, as Jesus went the people pressed around him. So let's pause there for a second. First thing I want you to see from Jairus this morning, fathers, men, is lay down your pride for your family. Lay down your pride for your family. So let me give you some context to our story here. It says that, that when Jesus returned, so obviously we're kind of starting in the middle of something here, right? Jesus had been in the region of Galilee teaching, uh, leading, doing miracles, all kinds of crazy stuff. People were loving it. And then he decides to leave, and he gets in a boat. He goes across the sea to the, the region of the Gerasenes, and he's there for just a couple days. He does another miracle, and then they reject him. And so he comes back now to Galilee. So we're picking it up when he's returning back to Galilee after being gone for a couple days. But his reputation already precedes him. Right? Like they, they knew who he was. He'd already been there once doing his thing. And they were, like, they were looking for this guy, Jesus, again, to see the miracles and to hear the teachings. And, and so he pulls up on the shore, and there's a big crowd just waiting for him. Right? They're just waiting to engage with Jesus Again, and they welcomed him, and in the crowd there was this man named Jairus. And it says that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, I had to go look that up this week, because I knew that was something to do with like a Jewish official, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. And so what, we, what I found out was that Jairus, he was actually like the official who was responsible for arranging the Jewish uh, services in the synagogue. So he, he kind of been like overseeing the you know, the, the Sabbath services. So he would have picked out who was going to read the scripture, who was going to pray, who was going to share a word. Like, he would have been in charge of all of that, which meant that he would have been a man of high esteem, right? Like, in the Jewish community, in the city, he would have been a man of, of importance, of position. People would have wanted to know him and be around him because, like, he was the guy who was running the show at the synagogue. And because he was so tied in with the synagogue and with the Jewish faith, he most likely would have been very skeptical, maybe even opposed to any other teachers, miracle workers, healers that were not part of the traditional Jewish religious system, which Jesus was not. Right? He's kind of walking through the, the, the countryside doing his own thing. And so normally Jairus would have been very opposed or skeptical about this Jesus guy. But here, we says that he came with the crowd, and he fell at Jesus' feet, and he implored him. So I want you to picture this in your mind for just a moment. Jesus is pulling up in the boat, gets out of the boat, the disciples are with him, big crowd, they're on the shore waiting for him. And then Jairus, this guy of super importance, he's probably dressed really nice, he probably has, you know, he's, he's very dignified and very, you know, kind of put together. And he comes pushing his way through the crowd, all the way up to Jesus, and he falls down in the dirt in his nice clothes and everything, and he's holding at Jesus' feet, and he's saying, please, please, come help me. This man who normally would have been above all of that throws himself at Jesus' feet, begging for help. So what could bring a man to that point, <laughs> right? Like, like, what does that to somebody? Well, the text tells us right here, it says that he, his only daughter, 12 years old, was dying. Yep, <laughs> that'll do it, right? 
there's something about dads and their daughters. Really, dads and their kids in general. But, but there's you know, that saying that you know, she has dad wrapped around her little finger? Like, being a dad of three girls, i just be honest with you, there's something to that. Right? Like there's, there's something in that saying that there's some honesty to that. I've never felt the level of emotion that I did when I first saw and held my daughters after they were born. Like there's, it just changes you, man. Like there's something inside that just, there's like a flip, a switch that flips, and you're just, you don't see the world the same anymore. You don't think the same anymore. Like it's just different. And I, I, I kind of, I think, realized that even more so uh, this last year Actually, it was just last summer, we took our girls down to uh, Fair St. Louis, 4th of July, down on the riverfront, underneath the arch to see the fireworks. And this is the first time we'd ever taken the girls down to that event. Now, I used to go all the time when I was a kid. My dad used to take our family down there to see the fireworks, and you'd, you know, you'd, everybody would uh, kind of rush into the park, you have all these people, and you're standing on the stairs, and you're watching the fireworks, and it was a big deal. We'd go during college with friends. Me and Courtney went sometimes when we were first married together. This is the first time I'd ever taken the girls with me. And it was a completely different experience. <laughs> right? Like, like, all of a sudden, dark park, crowds, shady-looking places, and I got three little girls, 8, 10, and 12, and I'm just like, I'm, everybody was suspect. I'm just, I don't care who you were, what you were doing, the cops were suspect. Like, I'm, just, I'm looking at everybody, I'm looking over my shoulder, I'm constantly, like, checking the terrain, just looking for anybody who's going to try to mess with them in this situation. And if, I mean, you can look at me, I'm, I'm not much of a fighter, let's just be honest, but, but that night I was ready to go, right? Because, like, there's something in us as dads that wants to help, that wants to protect, that wants to save, that wants to safeguard our children, daughters or sons. And Jairus, he's feeling that right now. Jairus was there. There was nothing he would not do at this point to save his daughter. So here he is in the dirt at the feet of Jesus. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but I'm just kind of thinking through the story here and thinking through Jairus' experience. No doubt, he had tried everything else before he got to this point, right? Like, sure, like, he would have already tapped all the doctors he could find, all the different treatments he could, have, he could think of. He would have tried all the medicines. He probably would have traded on his position and traded on his influence to get any help he could for his daughter. He's probably tapped all the Jewish, you know, prayer ceremonies and healing ceremonies. He's called special priests in. He's called guys that he knows he's connected to in the synagogue to come and pray over his daughter. He's tried all this stuff, and none of it has worked. She's still dying. And so now he's desperate. He's broken. He's finally come to the place where he understands, I can't fix it. I can't fix this. As much as I want to, I can't. And so he came to Jesus in humility in front of everybody. The whole town is there. He's put all of his pride on the line. He's bowed in humble submission before Jesus, crying and begging, please help me. Because at this point, his humility was all that he had left. And it simply responds in the scripture, and it says, Jesus went. No big conversation, no big to-do, 
just Jesus says, yes, I'll go. And I think that's because Jesus is responding here to the humility that he sees in Jairus. He, he's responding to the fact that he's turning to God in humility. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says this. It says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Men, we need to memorize that verse, write it down, tattoo it somewhere, whatever you got to do. Like, we need to have that. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus is giving grace to Jairus right here because he has humbled himself. He's laid down his pride, and he's saying, Jesus, just take it. Just take over. I can't do it. I can't fix it. I can't carry it anymore. Jesus, you have to take it. Please help me. I'll admit, as a father, as a husband, I, I'm, I'm a fixer, right? Do, do I have any other fixers in the room, right? Like, like, there's just something in us, I think sometimes hardware, like, men, we want to solve problems. Like, we want to just fix whatever the issue is. We want to get it back to a good place. We want to make sure it's okay. We want to, and so, for example, when my, when my daughters or my wife, when they come to me with a problem or a complaint, or, or to, when they tell me about something that's going on in their lives, my brain hears that, receives that information, and automatically translates that into a request for help, right? They maybe never asked for anything. They were just, like, sharing the information. But for me, that's like, okay, how am I going to fix this, right? Dad, the Wi-Fi is not working. I just heard, Dad, will you please fix the Wi-Fi? That's, that's the way that translates in my male brain, okay? Um, or, Dad, this boy at school was messing with me at the playground. They pushed me down. I just heard, Dad, you need to go take care of this kid, right? Like, that's... That's what I hear when that comes through the brain process. When Courtney says, my, my feet are hurting so much today, like, I just heard, will you please rub my feet? Uh, see, they, obviously, they just, this is, why, this is the way it works. And so, like, I feel the need, then, to respond to that request for help in one of two ways. Either, great, yeah, that's easy, I can do that, no problem. Or, I don't know. <laughs> Like, great, you got a problem. I don't know how to fix that, so I guess, I'm, I guess now I have to figure it out. I have to muscle it. I have to do something to find a way to fix this problem that I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank you, you two. But sometimes there's some problems, men, that are so big, we can't fix it. We just can't. As hard as that is to swallow, there are some things that I can't fix. I can't heal their illness. We've had kids sick in our house for two weeks now, and I can't fix that. Right? I, I can't take away the pain of that broken relationship or that hurtful word that someone said to them. I can't do that. I, I can't change their hearts to make them love Jesus more than they love their sin. There are some things I can't fix. And men, if we're going to be strong, effective fathers, we have to recognize that. That there's some things that I can't do. And we have to humbly lay those problems down at the feet of Jesus and let him be the fixer. I must lay down my pride and let Jesus be my fixer. That's the first thing we see from Jairus here. He's laying it down. That's where strength comes from. 
But there's more to the story. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 43. It says, And there was a woman who had 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 a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched him, that's Jesus, the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, seriously, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, No, 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 someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Talking to Jairus now. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Second point we see here from from Jairus this morning, strong fathers, lay down your front for your family. Lay down your front for your family. Now, very interesting part of the scripture here in this story is this. It starts off in verse 43, it says, and there was a woman, okay, Now, again, interpreting this for Jairus, what he just heard or saw was, and there was an interruption, okay? Because he's on a mission, right, for his daughter. He's, he's, Jesus agreed to go. Jairus is probably out front leading the way, right? He's leading him to the house. Jesus is following him. The big crowd's behind Jesus and following Jesus. And all of a sudden, everybody stops, and Jairus turns and he looks, and Jesus is stopped in the middle of the road, all the people surrounding him, and he's talking, Jairus is like, what are we doing? <laughs> I thought we were going to the house, you know, the daughter, the healing. Like, we need to go. This is a serious matter. What are you doing, Jesus? But Jesus has stopped in the middle of the street, big crowd. And he starts asking questions. And Jairus is like, don't, why are we stop? Like, don't you understand this is a time-sensitive thing? <laughs> like, my daughter's dying. I'm thinking he was probably anxious, frustrated, maybe even discouraged in the moment over this interruption to the plan. But interesting, it doesn't say any of that. In fact, it doesn't mention Jairus throughout this entire little interlude here. Not a word about him, which tells me he was probably just kind of standing back here in the background. Like, if you saw the picture of this on the movie screen, right? Like, Jesus would be in the center, and the, the woman would be kind of all over here, and the crowd would be all around. And Jairus is kind of back here in the corner, just standing there, just observing the whole thing, and just like. Right? Like, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't do it. He's not in the story for the moment. And it says, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? There's like, seriously, Jesus? Like, does that even matter right now? And Peter's like, yeah, master, like, the, the crowd's all around. Like, who's not touching you? Right? Like, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? But Jesus presses down hard. He's like, no, no, someone touched me. 
Think about like the like the, the ancient narrow streets in the cities, right, with all the shops and stuff, and people are all squeezing through. Like like when you leave the ball game and everybody's leaving at the same time, and you're all trying to squeeze through the doors, right? It was like that scene. Peter's like, "Who's not touching you, Jesus?" He's like, "No, somebody touched me," and he stops and he waits. Like that awkward silence wait, right? Where he's just standing there in the crowd, and he's just kind of looking around. Somebody. Somebody touched me. And he's just waiting. And Jairus is like, what, what are we doing? Let's go. Finally, the woman says she knows she, she wasn't hidden. She came trembling. She comes mousily through the crowd, sheepishly approaching Jesus. And she falls down on the ground, and she declared that she was the one who touched him. And then she goes into her whole story, Right? And it says she's been sick for 12 years, so there was probably quite a story here. So she's telling this big, long story, and Jairus is like, just get to the point. Land the plane, lady. Like, we got to go. But she's telling this whole thing. Jesus is sitting there patiently listening. And then he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And that statement, your faith has made you well, could also be translated, your faith has saved you. Jesus is taking a moment to acknowledge that God has changed her life, both physically and spiritually, in this moment as he's met her in her time of need. And while he was still speaking, while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, a servant, somebody comes running over from Jairus' house, and he comes up to Jairus, again, probably over here on the side, not in the middle of the crowd. He says, hey, sorry, bro, she's, she's gone. Like, you don't need to bother him anymore. She's dead. It's too late. And again, just, just feel the weight of those words on Jairus' heart. Like imagine his pain, his disappointment, probably even his anger in that moment, right? Like, look what you have done. No, look, we were on the way and you stopped us for this woman. She's been sick for 12 years. Surely she could wait a few more hours. My daughter couldn't wait, and now she's gone. Again, this is somewhat speculation because it doesn't say any of that. Jairus doesn't say a word. He doesn't make a move. But I guarantee you it's not because he wasn't thinking things. It's not because he wasn't feeling things. He was human like all of us, and we know how we would be feeling in that moment. The reason it's not recorded is because Jairus was keeping up the front. He's keeping up the mask. Like, it's okay. We're gonna, I got this under control. It's all going to be all right. I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just holding steady in that moment. He's not showing the emotion. He's not showing the fear. He's not showing the struggle. He's just like holding it in and just many, you know what I'm talking about, men. He's just keeping up the front. But we know something's going on because then it says, Jesus answered him. It doesn't say Jesus said. It says Jesus answered him. Can you answer somebody if they haven't said something to you first? We can't, but Jesus can because Jesus knew what he wasn't saying. 
Jesus knew what Jairus was thinking, what he was feeling, what he was going through. And Jesus is going to answer him in this moment, even though he hasn't said or done a thing throughout the entire scene. And Jesus says three things to him. He says, do not fear. Because Jairus was afraid. He was afraid it was too late. Like, surely, yeah, if Jesus would have got there on time, he could, maybe could have healed her. But now she's dead, and nobody brings people back from the dead, right? Like, this, it's over. And he's full of fear. But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Only believe. Which could also be translated, put your trust in me. You trusted in me once. You trusted in me enough to come to the, to the water side and to fall in the dirt and to ask for my help. Like, just keep going. Just keep trusting. Don't lose the faith. It's what he's saying to Jairus right here. Right? Like, you can't see it yet, but you can believe it still. Like, just keep your faith in me. Trust that I can do what you can't do. That's why you came to me in the first place, right? How often do we go to God with something, asking for help, asking him to to intervene, and then when it doesn't happen exactly when we want or how we want or what we think it should look like, we're like, I knew it. I knew he wasn't going to do it. And God's saying, just just wait. Just hold on. Just, Just wait for the moment. Keep your faith. Keep trusting. He says, believe and she will be well. The exact same phrase he just used with the woman. Your faith has made you well. Again, it could also be translated, and she will be saved. And he's speaking here to Jairus. He's like, listen, if you'll keep the faith, it's not only going to save your daughter's physical life, it's going to save her and your and your entire family's spiritual lives. I'm going to make you well, not just because she's dying, but because you are sick. All of you, all of us are sick with sin. We suffer from a condition of the heart. From birth, we're born with sinful hearts that desire to do our own thing and rebel against God and disobey his word and go our own way. And God says, you deserve my wrath. You deserve punishment. You deserve death for that sin. But I love you. I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to come and to make a way for you to be forgiven. And Jesus Christ came to earth, and he was born as a man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. Sinless life. The one thing that none of us could do. And then he went to the cross, and he died a sinner's death. He gave up his perfection to pay for our sin, to pay to take the death that we deserved. He stood in our place as substitute, and he died, and he went to the grave, And three days later, he came back to life, proving that he was God and offering forgiveness for all those who will not fear, but only believe. And you will be made well. That's what Jesus says. And that's for all of us, even today. He's responding here to Jairus' fear which I think is very instructive to us as men. Because we're told in our culture a lot of times as men that we're not supposed to be afraid, right? Like, you're supposed to have courage and strength and, like, never be afraid and just just man up and go after it. But the reality is, 
we all come face to face with scary situations sometimes. Things outside of our control, things bigger than us, we all have things that we're fearful of, even if we don't show it. But the question really is, and I think this is the question he's putting on Jairus here, is not, are you afraid? He knew he was afraid. But how are you responding to your fear? Fear is going to come to all of us. But how do you respond to your fear? I think there's five ways that men typically respond to fear that are not good. And I'm going to give you a sixth way that I think Jesus, that God is calling us to respond to fear in those moments. So let's go with the first five to start. Number one, some men respond with attack, right? When the fear comes, when the problem comes, just attack it, right? Just, just face it head on, run into the fire, work the problem, just attack, 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 overcome the fear. And there's some times where that can be helpful, but so often the issue, the, the weakness in that response is that it's dependent on me, It's dependent on my strength, my abilities to be able to overcome whatever it is. And sometimes I can't. And I'll just confess this point, like, this is my number one. Like, when the problem comes, when the fear comes, my number one response is just, like, go. Attack. Work the problem. Fix it. Just whatever you got to do to just overcome and keep going. When my wife was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago, like, through the surgeries and the treatments and all the stuff, like, this was my heart response at the beginning. Like, just, just... just attack, just work through it, work the problem, do what you got to do, just survive and keep going. But that, that didn't work. Not long term. Sometimes we don't have enough to just attack. Second response common for men is to avoid. This is the opposite of that, right? So if there's a problem in fear and I know I can't handle it, then I just avoid it. Just turn my back on it. Just walk away, run away. Don't look at it. Don't acknowledge it. Don't talk about it. If I just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. That's what we think, right? If I, just, if I just avoid it, it'll go away. But here's the problem with that. It doesn't go away. Very rarely. In fact, usually it doesn't go. It actually grows as we avoid it. This can look like throwing myself into my business or throwing myself into my work in order to avoid and ignore the growing cracks in my marriage. I don't know what to say to her. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to do it. So I'm just going just gonna, to eh, put that over here, and I'm just going to spend all my time over here on this thing and grow that business and work those hours and get that promotion and do my thing. It doesn't work. Number three is to appease. To appease. What, what can I do to just make it go away? Right? Like just, just tell me what to say, tell me what to do, tell me what box to cross off, and I'll do it to just, just get rid of the problem. Right? What's the quickest and easiest way to get on the other side of this? Just tell me and I'll do it. And we just appease the situation, we appease the person in order to get past the fear or the problem. And again, the weakness in this is that too often in order to appease whatever it is, we have to compromise our own character. We have to compromise our own integrity and let things go that we know we shouldn't let go or do things we know we shouldn't do. Sometimes, men, this looks like with our kids. 
Right? Like I, I just I don't want to always be the bad guy. I want my kids to like me, so I just give them whatever they want. I just let them do whatever they want. I just appease them so that I stay the good dad. Even though that's not what they need. And that's not what's best for, that's not what's best for them. But it's just easier to appease. Number four is anchor. Sometimes our response to fear is just to anchor, right? Just to throw down the feet, and I'm just going to stand right here and stand strong and dig in my heels. If I just wait it out long enough, I can make it through. I can, just don't flinch first, right? Like just, just stay solid. I can do this all day. And we just try to stand there and resist and resist and resist. And in trying to resist that fear, resist that problem, we also end up, this is the weakness, we also end up resisting all of the positive change that God might be trying to do through that problem and through that fear and through that issue. Because we were just like, I'm not going to change. I'm just going to anchor right here. Sometimes this can play out at work even, right? Like, I know my skills, I know my job, I'm going to do it my way, I'm not going to listen to that boss, I'm not going to listen to the other team members, I'm just going to do my thing, my way, and just drop anchor right here, and you can't tell me different. When I'm really just fearful that I might have to learn a new thing over here, or something might change, I might have to do something differently, and I don't want to change, and so I'm just going to anchor. Number five is alienate. This is when I deliberately push others away. I push the problem away, right? I'm going to offend you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to do anything I can to ostracize you until you just give up and just leave me alone and take the problem with you, right? And I can just get rid of the fear by simply ostracizing and pushing all of these things and all these people away. But obviously the weakness there is it leaves a wake of broken relationships in your life over and over and over again. Because you just alienate and push and push and push. I lash out at my kids. Because I don't really know how to help them. I don't know how to fix their heart problems. I don't know how to fix their, their, their life issues. And so instead of showing weakness or showing my fear on what's going to happen to them, I just yell and scream and punch holes in the wall. And I just lash out so they'll leave me alone and go somewhere else with their problems. I alienate. But here's the deal. All five of those responses, men, behind all five of them is actually the same problem. It's the same sinful heart of pride behind all of them. It's a pride of self. My strength, my solutions, my way. But Jesus calls us to a different response. He gives us an alternative to deal with fear in our lives. Here's what God's word calls us to when it comes to fear. Admit your fear to Jesus. Just admit it. Just come to him and say, oh, I, I can't do this. I'm scared. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fix it. Jesus, I need your help. Just lay down that front. Stop acting like you've got it all together. Stop acting like you can handle it all. And just admit it. Yes, I'm afraid. I don't know what to do here. Help me. 
Believe in Jesus and he will trust you, or he will lead you to trust him through the fear. Not in your strength, but in his. I must lay down my front and let Jesus be my strength. So lay down my pride, lay down my front, and there's one more thing we see from Jairus here at the end of the story. Look at verse 51. It says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and as he directed that, something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Point number three is this. Lay down your worship for your family. Last thing we see here from Jairus, lay down your worship for your family. As they get to the house, they finally get there, and Jesus gets ready to go into the room or go into the, the house with the, with the girl, and he didn't allow anyone else to enter with him except for her parents. A couple disciples except for her parents. And I love this because Jesus understood in this moment exactly what they needed, and he had invited them in close. He's like, no, no, just, just come with me. Just, just be in my presence. Just, you, you, need to, you need to experience this. You need to see this. Like, come. And this is exactly ground zero for worship. It always starts with getting in the presence of Jesus. That's where we have to go. It all starts with him. It all revolves around him. Worship gets in the presence of Jesus. And so he invites them in to the room. And then it says, as he's going in, he's got, they, got like, they have like professional mourners during the day. Like they would come to your house and like mourn when someone died in your house. That seems weird to us, but it was like a big deal. So like these people, they see death all the time. Right? Like this is their job. They're around this all the time. They knew if she was dead or not. And as he's going in, he's like, he's like why are you crying? She's not dead. They're like, <laughs> like They laugh at him. Because they know she's dead. And they don't think anything's going to change. They don't really have the faith that he can do anything about it. And, but Jesus, as he goes in, he addresses their lack of faith. He addresses their doubt in what's about to happen. And you say, this is so key for us as well. When we're thinking about worship unto the Lord, things and people in our lives who lack faith and doubt Jesus can actually weaken our worship. They can weaken our faith. They can cause us to also lose hope when we surround ourselves with that constantly. There's no room for doubt and for Jesus in the same heart. They can't coexist. And so worship rejects personal doubt in Jesus. So we get into this presence, reject doubt, and then he says, as he gets in there, he just looks at him and he just says, child, arise. Like no big magical, you know, words or prayer or potion. He's just like, hey, just... Just get up. And it says her spirit returned. That's how we know she was actually dead, not just sleeping. We see the power of God on ultimate display as he brings this girl back to life. And it's a, a pattern we see all throughout Scripture that God best demonstrates his power in our weakness. When we're at our lowest, when we're at our weakest points, is when God steps in and does the miraculous. 
Because his power can achieve anything. And so worship focuses on what God can do, not what I can do. Worship on, we don't come here Sunday mornings because of what we can bring to God. You understand that, right? Like we're not here for us. We're here for him. To experience him, to experience his presence, to experience his power. We're here to give him worship and give him glory because he is the one who can do it and we can't. Worship focuses on the power of Jesus. And then as he brings her back to life, it just simply says, maybe the most understated experience for parents ever in the Bible, that her parents were amazed. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. They were amazed at the power of, and the grace of God in their lives. He had moved in ways in their family that they could never have even imagined. And this is what worship looks like. Worship leaves us pondering the glory of Jesus. It leaves us amazed. And that's really what we want. That's what our heart desires. People want to be amazed, right? Like, it's just in us. This is why we go to baseball games and movies. This is why we go to concerts and musicals. This is why we travel to exotic and beautiful places and just look at creation. This is why we build businesses and and strive for success, because we want to have that feeling. We want to feel amazed by something. But the problem with all that stuff is that eventually that amazement fades. It doesn't last. It doesn't sustain us because it was never meant to. All the things in this world that are amazing are all just small little tastes of the true amazing God who created all of it. And they're meant to point us back to him that we would be amazed by him alone and not by all this other junk. Men, we need to be amazed By God himself. So I just want to close with this list of how to be amazed by God. This may seem super simplistic, but sometimes I think we need the simple spelled out for us. Because we get off. How to be amazed by God. Number one, don't be amazed by the average. Don't settle for lesser things in your heart. We're so easily satisfied by the things of this world, by our experiences, by our interests, by our accomplishments, and they never fully amaze us because they all depend on us rather than depending on God. When we put our amazement in those other things, we lack faith and we lack worship because we're looking at the wrong person. We're looking in the wrong places. So don't let yourself, don't let your heart be trapped and stolen away to be amazed by lesser things, by average things. Instead, number two, put yourself in a position to be amazed by God himself. You have to position yourself there. You have to have that heart of humility, that heart of brokenness like we see in Jairus here. You have to lay it all down for him, put it all on the line. No backup plans, no hedged bets, no like, if this doesn't work, I've still got this. Men, we're so good at that. 
We're so good at always having the plan B. And God says, there is no plan B. It's just me. Lay everything else down and just come to me with all that you have, desperate and dependent, because that's when God will move in your life. That's when God will show up and truly amaze you. Lastly, number three, worship the God who is amazing. Give him all the glory he deserves when he moves in your life, when he moves in your family, when he moves in your business. Give him, don't take any of that for yourself. Don't steal glory from God. Give him all the glory. This should be the natural response of truly experiencing amazement from God. This is why at the end Jesus has to tell them, like at the end he say, he's like, hey, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Which is kind of strange. He just like brought this girl back to life. That's amazing. Hey, don't tell anybody. Because their natural response was going to be to tell everybody. Like, you will not believe what happened. But Jesus wasn't ready for all that yet. Right? He had a plan. He was working here. He's like, hey, don't tell anybody. Because the natural overflow of an amazed heart of God is that I want to tell everybody. And now us men, we're at the point in history where we don't have to tell nobody anymore. Right? Like we can tell everybody. Jesus has taken, blown open the gates and said, go tell everyone. And so we need to be in a position where we're being amazed by God and then we're sharing that amazement with our, our kids and our wives and the men at work and the other people at church and the people in your small group and the people in your neighborhood. We need to be amazed in such a way that it is flowing out of us. Don't hold back. Stop holding back for something else, something better, for keeping up the front, for holding on to your pride. Lay it all down and just be amazed by God. I must lay down my worship and be fully amazed by Jesus. My strength as a father is determined not by how much I can carry, but by how much I will lay down at the feet of Jesus. Men, I said it earlier, we all want to be strong in one form or another. And there's nothing wrong with that. God wired that into us. It's a good thing. But we have to know what real strength looks like, where real strength comes from. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, God says to, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you want to be strong, first you have to lay down all of your weakness before the Lord. Your pride, your front, your self-worship, all of that's got to go. And then God will come and he will fill you with his strength for his glory. But it starts, fathers, as we lay down all of that. Surrender all of that to the Lord. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, God, so thankful to be in your house again. So thankful, God, that you are our Father. 
Lord, that you call us your sons and your daughters, Lord, that you bring us into a relationship with you that sets the tone and sets the mark for all other relationships. Thank you for being that perfect father to us. Thank you for being an example of what it means to lovingly lead and to lay ourselves down for others. Lord, you came for us and you laid it all down. Lord, help us do the same. Forgive us for all the ways that we try to measure up, all the ways that we try to get by on our own strength, all the ways that we try to be dependent on ourselves. Help us, Lord, to confess our pride, to lay it down, and to put our hearts before you. God, help us to surrender ourselves, surrender our families, surrender our lives to you and to you alone. Pray all of this in Christ's name.